Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, a development in a mundane but crucial cog in the $13 trillion U.S. Treasury market poses a fresh challenge for regulators. What does it mean for you? We'll talk about that next. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul and Stephen here with you on this Wednesday in August, joined by uh, a couple of folks here in the studio. One is Member of Parliament, John Carney. John, how are you doing there? <laughs> Cheerio. Cheerio. And uh, our dear friend, longtime friend of the podcast, but never actually on the podcast until long-time today. Longtime listener, first-time uh, Long-time listener, first-time guest, Katie Byrne. Katie, how are you? Hello. Top of the afternoon to you. Top, uh, you have to speak into the, the microphone. I said okay. top of the afternoon Top of the afternoon. What do, what do they call microphones in uh, in, in London town? Um. Mics. Mics? Okay. Lifts. Uh, lifts? Flats? Lorries. Lorries? Okay. Uh, we were having a little, little fun at Katie's expense before this started, so that that's the, the inside joke there. That isn't even really funny if you're not one of the four of us, but, you know, share it anyhow. That's pretty much every joke on the, on this show. Yeah, except the ones at my expense, which apparently are hysterical, so Grocer keeps making them. Audience favorites. Audience favorites. Yeah, yeah, fan <laughs> favorites. <laughs> Uh, Okay, the reason that we have brought Katie and John in today is because a very interesting story that Katie wrote about, and what I think is, the story itself is interesting, Katie, but what I think is interesting is that we we keep finding these these stories in the treasury market that you would think the government bond market should be the most boring thing on the planet, never of any real interest, but that actually isn't the case. These stories keep coming up. Right. And and I think the other thing that sort of surprises me about them is like there's the stories you're most so easily can overlook. Right. But shouldn't. Yes. Because they're actually quite important. In, in fact, the headline of your story, Katie, even goes to making this point, right? The headline of the story that Katie wrote earlier this week is this boring service is suddenly a big concern for treasuries. And, and, and this one needs some setup. So – Katie, why don't you just kind of like take a step back and explain the give us a big picture of what is happening with this story that you wrote. Right. So what everyone knows is that treasuries are like the world's most important security. We've known that, you know, investors flock to it for safety. It's obviously incredibly important at all moments. But what is new is that this market has when when a buyer and a seller need to exchange cash for bonds, what they do is they pay a middleman, and these are called Fed clearing banks. And there have been two of them for a very long time. Um, certainly in this century, there have only been two. There's been Bank of New York Mellon, there's been J.P. Morgan, and they essentially are paid a fee to make sure that A and B exchange their cash and securities on time and that the right securities are exchanged. So that's what this role is. It's obviously pretty critical. There's nothing more important to the to the economy, the global economy even, that treasuries get where they need to go to the right people in the right hands. How big is the treasury market? Because you say this is important to the global um, you know, marketplace. Give a sense of how big the treasury market is. It's $13.4 trillion right now. Wow. It's, the, that is, it's the biggest market in a single security in the world. Uh, you could say the world in history, whatever you want. Any, <laughs> right. any definition of everything you want to say, this is the biggest of everything. Right. So to me, like this role that they play in making sure that A gets into to, to B's hands at the right time and that there's no funky substitutions of securities that shouldn't be there, there's almost nothing more important than that. And what's happening is that, as you know, we'll get into, we now have one uh, 
sole provider for that service, where we used to have two, and where last century we had more like six right. or seven. And, or or and, we will. We will have one because, as your story says, J.P. Morgan announced that they're going to get out of the market. That's true, although as of now officially, there is one place where you will be able to go for this service. So these these firms are expect, expected to be in already in discussions and I believe have been in discussions for a little bit longer than maybe the announcement was actually out there for to, to move across. And one of the reasons this thing, right, trading cash for treasuries is so important is that this is actually how a lot of investing and uh, lending gets done in the United States. So if you're a firm, uh, a bank that needs to that needs cash either to buy other securities or to buy um, or to lend out money to people, one of the things you do is you take your treasuries to one of these guys and get and you put that up as collateral to get cash from somebody else. And so this this exchange of cash for treasuries is absolutely central to every financial transaction of any size that happens in the United States, and it's central to the way the banking system works. It's right. The giant plumbing system that is under the floorboard of Wall Street relies on these things happening in the correct way at the right time. And what happens is Bank of New York... Uh, and J.P. Morgan have these pipes into the government where when the cash is exchanged on one side, they literally get the securities in from the Treasury on the other side. And they're the only two firms that have that. And one of the things that goes on – so like when we had our financial crisis, one of the things that happened was companies that needed cash lacked the amount of securities that they needed to be able to put it up for to, to in order to access cash. And banks like Bank of New York Mellon and J.P. Morgan Chase were, act, were actually at the center of this because their job was to look at a Bear Stearns and say, do you have the collateral to participate in this kind of exchange? And when they didn't, that became a crisis for the bank. So that's how central this is, that these guys are, are absolutely at the pinnacle of – or these guys, this one bank now is absolutely at the... Also, what I find fascinating is that you walk around and you think that the most scary institutions that might fail are maybe, you know, the the J.P. Morgans of the world. And sorry, J.P. Morgan's the wrong example, but like a Citigroup, a major central bank, a major bank, right? But the man on the street just doesn't walk around thinking that, you know, Bank of New York failing is that much of a problem, right? But little do they know that Bank of New York is sitting on top of this hugely important infrastructure and they basically run it now. So this raise, look, this story raises just a, a lot of questions. I'm going to try to go through a lot of them in my mind. They may come out of order. Uh, my first question just is, why is J.P. Morgan getting out of this business? So people who are close to the bank and who have had dealings with the bank uh, have been told that it's because of changes in regulation, as we all know. You know, Dodd-Frank put all these uh, obligations on banks and made it very costly for them to do businesses that they used to think nothing of doing because it was part of value-added service. But what happened is this... Uh, you know, the liquidity rules on banks mean that they have to set aside all this money now to do certain trades. And if it wasn't that profitable to begin with, which a lot of the businesses John was just describing called repo, it's never that valuable anyway. It was low margin business. Now with the rules, it's even more expensive. So we need to get out of this because we can't justify this anymore. And by the way, we need to deploy our capital in other areas. So goodbye to not all of this uh, government security settlement business, but to most of it. So they're getting out people are being told because of regulation. And that makes sense. Look, when you raise the capital requirements and raise the liquidity requirements, you do make it more expensive to participate in businesses. In other words, what you do is you, you raise the, the hurdle 
for what kind of businesses banks will participate in. And what so I, I don't think this is a case where banks whine about regulation all the time. Uh, one thing that's interesting is we actually don't have any explicit whining about regulation. So it's this isn't one of those cases where they're trying to say, oh, you know, we're overregulated and, you know, and we could just sort of be like, oh, you know, they just are trying to, you know, up their profits. This is a case where they're just like, you know what, we don't think we're going to be able to change this regulation and we're getting out of this. And I do think probably a big piece of it is regula- r- r- driven by the regulation. But this is this is a sort of like this isn't an intended consequence because this business isn't a risky business, which, you know, Dodd-Frank is, you know, designed to reduce your risk. This Correct. is a sort of a, a sort of a side effect of Dodd-Frank right. trying to reduce risk by increasing the capital banks have to hold. That's it's, right. It's like a, to an extent it's an embarrassment for the regulators that this has even happened because it's, you know, you have to imagine that this this crucial role that J.P. Morgan's played as one of only two providers, you know, since the late 1990s, early 2000s, you know, you have to imagine that even if it was unattractive for them for the past few years, that they've remained under pressure to stay in this business. But right now, I mean, effectively what they've done is wash their hands of it, which is, you know, in a way an embarrassment to the regulators. Even before this happened, there was some concern about just having two. Um, Back in the, the, you know, the ancient days uh, um, before this century and before midway through uh, the 1990s, there were more banks that uh, performed these services. They slowly got out. We had two for a while. That was concerning to some people because it said, well, what if one of them drops out? Then we'll only have one. Right. And as we say in the story, it was a huge concern for the Fed to the point where as far back as, you know, 2006, before the financial crisis, they were looking at what to do about the fact that there were only two because in the terrorist attacks of 2001, there were major problems in Boney's like um, actual critical infrastructure around the World Trade Center and they had a backup, but their backup was clue- too close to their original servers. They had a switching station go wrong, a Verizon like switching station go wrong and mo- people didn't get their money on time. Boney is not immune to operational. Well, yeah, right, like, let's, uh, let's actually, okay. yeah, now that we've, we've sufficiently scared people, let's uh, <laughs> take a break. Let, let's take a break because we have an important message and we'll come back on the other side of it. Hi, this is Jason Gay, sports writer at the Wall Street Journal, and I have a podcast called Free For All. And guess what? It's not just sports. We'll also talk about some real estate, some music, some culture, some fashion. I could talk about fashion. It's the Free For All. Become a subscriber on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Beat podcast in the studio with John Carney and Katie Byrne talking about the Treasury market. Uh, and uh, we, we might have scared you a little bit there when we left off, but it's always a good place to, to leave off as a nice cliffhanger. But it does raise a really interesting question. I mean, how concerned are regulators about the fact that you now have one entity doing all this clearing? How concerned should investors be? Uh, you know, you, you, you stated before, most people are walking around not thinking about Bank of New York Mellon. How worried should I be? Well, can, can, we, can we take a, I, like, I wouldn't mind taking a step back and talking a little bit about how, thing, like, what can go wrong? 
that could disrupt this if one bank is in it? Like, what, what's the related issue question? Of, related yeah, question. What is the issue with just one bank being? Well, uh, historically, what has actually gone wrong that the Fed has spent a lot of time trying to clear up is that these um, these firms like J.P. Morgan and Boney, one of the issues is they're serving these banks that are trafficking in these securities. But these um, big bond brokers like Goldman and Morgan Stanley, for example, that they're serving, they don't sit on piles of, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of cash to maintain those portfolios of bonds. So what happens is they will go out and buy bonds during the day, but these Fed clearing banks, Boney and JP Morgan, are actually helping them settle them with their own money in advance of the broker-dealer being able to pay them back. So for a long time, what was happening is the money that was being returned to the Bonies and the JP Morgans of the world wasn't happening simultaneously with them lending it out to these big broker dealers. So there was sort of eight hours during the day where they were over their skis on this stuff. You know, around the financial crisis, the Fed comes in and says, we need to clear this up because this is not happening flush. And, you know, this is a risk because if JP Morgan and Boney ever had an issue, the, you know, obviously the whole thing falls to the ground. So this has been something they've been wrestling with for a while. So it's finan- in terms of what can go wrong, it's financial, um, you know, in the sense if they become insolvent or they, if they can't pay back what they're supposed to be um, what they're what they're owing, but also it's operational because as we've seen, as I was saying in two thousand one, they've had operational problems before in in two thousand one. Right. So, like, so what happens? So to to be more explicit, um, what happens if you know Boney uh, gets in trouble, right? And um, suddenly, it's the only one that owes cash to all these people, and you know, and has to declare bankruptcy, and it's you know, this. At this point, what that's probably very unlikely to happen um, because actually, let me give you a sense of of, sure. of the real unpacking here. So, Boney is primarily sitting between these banks that are that are trafficking this in these securities, but what they're also sitting in the middle of is where banks are on one side of a transaction and your money market neutral fund where Joe Abrams down the corner has gone to write, you know, his put his paycheck into a money market mutual fund and he's expecting this thing to be as safe as houses and to get his money at the end of the day and when he puts $100 in a money market mutual fund he doesn't expect to get $50 back so if something goes wrong on one end of the transaction where there's a problem inside the interbank system and that means that the trap the pass through to the money market mutual fund that's on the other end where a lot of the cash is ultimately originating from there's a major problem because these money market mutual funds depend on the wall street side of the plumbing to get their cash and the correct amount of their cash and the correct uh timing of their cash back. Right. And so either a financial problem or, as Katie was saying, an operational problem, you know, just your wires get crossed, your server shuts down. Um, it, one virtue of having multiple players in this is you you would have somebody who could step in and, uh, Which, and yeah. you know, and tr- try to take up some of the slack if, if, there, if somebody gets, systems get overwhelmed. We won't have that now. Uh, if, and we're talking if, about like the liquidity, too, uh, in the market. I mean, like the very fundamental liquidity of how right. money And confidence. Moves. Because confidence, if yeah. at any point anyone feels 
not confident enough to be if you're a money if you're federated and you're running like the biggest money market mutual fund in the world and you think some of these pipes won't work and you pull your money that is an extremely problematic scenario if, for Wall if Street. this service is so important and so critical to the market why can't anybody else figure out a way to make it profitable and, and go in and do it why did why was it only two and now why is it only one this is such a conundrum for me and I you know I think this is something that the Fed should be more transparent about because Frankly, it's obviously an unattractive business. It's hugely costly for people to now set up the infrastructure and technology that they would need to run these pipes to the government, right? But in addition, with Boney having what is essentially now a monopoly on this, why would you set up a business if you knew that you were going to be a drop in the bucket anyway? So it's unattractive to enter it. It's unattractive for the rival firm that has been in it for you know more than a decade. And the Manny Hannies of the world and the Irving Trust that John was talking about last century that got out of it, got out of it because there was a lot of consolidation. But this business hasn't been attractive for a long time. And, and one of the questions I keep asking myself is how did the Fed let it get here? Right. You know, like how, irri- how, how many checkpoints along the way have they had where they could have stepped in? But the interesting thing about the Fed and the Treasury is the philosophy there is, you know, we we don't want to dictate to, you know, to commercial Wall Street institutions what they should be doing with their businesses. Well, you know, that's a choice. But I mean, at what point does this become scary for everybody? Now, what percentage of the market did Bank of New York already have? Well, so we only know what percent. We know that they catered to... 19 of the 23 primary dealers, the big guys, the big Mm -hmm. guys that trade bonds with the Fed and with each other, which is the majority of the Treasury trading market. And then we also know that they had 85% of the business John was talking about where the money is being funneled between banks as as cash for them to run their operations during the day, which is the the, 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 of tripartite repo, they had 85%, which is a technical term for this sort of like crucial funding that, that, that these firms provide. Right. To Tri-party one repo just means you have you know one guy with cash, one guy with securities, and then you had Bank of New York or J.P. Morgan Chase as the tri-party, as the, as the middle party. Man. Yeah. yeah. So that was already like, I mean, there was a point where it was 50-50, but, you know, in the financial crisis when, you know, various broker deals were failing, you know, Boney, Merrill, um, you know, there was a lot of consolidation. So clients, just as a matter of the way that the consolidations happened and as happenstance is kind of accidental, Boney ended up with too much share of the of the business and JP Morgan ended up with not enough. And what happened was the clients on the JP Morgan side were hugely disadvantaged because it was lopsided, and that was a problem for a long time, and that was not addressed and should have been addressed. And now it's even worse because it's not 85%, it's 100%. Right. And if you think about why lopsided matters, if you are somebody with a lot of cash or somebody with a lot of securities, you want there to be as many people as possible on the other side of that. So if you're the securities holder, that you want there to be the you want to have your your middleman have access to as much as as the largest universe of cash holders as possible and if you're a cash holder you want to have access to the largest universe of um of securities holders as possible so when it gets very lopsided you are disadvantaged whichever you whichever side of that trade you're on so i it, there was this sort of once it became lopsided a sort of natural migration towards monopoly which, as Kitty was saying, was foreseeable, and um, maybe somebody should have, right. you know, tried to take some actions to correct. And the that. banks, just to clear up who the banks are on the lopsidedness, the ones that were at J.P. Morgan, we we have reported, 
uh, uh, HSBC, Royal Bank of Scotland, Credit Suisse, and J.P. Morgan's own primary dealer securities uh, hmm. dealing arm, which then, you know, you then start to wonder, well, what happens to that? I'm not sure that that's even been determined. But those banks, one wonders whether they were, um, you know, a little bit worried enough to be putting pressure on JP Morgan to figure out a solution for this for maybe right. some time before the announcement that they were going to exit this business. Can we talk about the repo market for sort of a moment and just how crucial that is to banks basically being able to do their business and, to be honest, survive. I mean, we saw in the financial crisis when the you know liquidity in the repo market dried up, you know, the issues there. And I just, if you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, it was basically ground zero because what happened was um, there was sort of nervousness around Wall Street when it became apparent that you know the securities that Lehman was lending out in exchange for cash, there was you know a there was some sloppiness there and the assets were not based on things that were graded correctly as we now know the ratings you know sucked at that time so sort of slowly but then rapidly people started withdrawing away from Lehman then all of a sudden there was a huge problem in funding across across Wall Street almost overnight and there was you know the Lehman episode but then other broker dealers Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs that came out saying you know this is a huge problem not just for Lehman but you know if this catches on you know, we're going to have major funding problems. And how much of a concern is it, does it remain for regulators, the reliance of the financial system on the repo market? Well, it's it's really interesting because what's happened is since the financial crisis, them realizing it was ground zero of the problems, leaving aside the housing market issues for, for one minute, the Fed came in to clean it up with some of the intraday credit extensions that we were talking about before, where Boney and JP Morgan were, were like putting up their own money for too long during the day. But now the repo market is slightly smaller than it used to be, because what's happening in the rules is the, is the regulators are trying to get banks to not rely on overnight repo loans, but to to term out their funding so that they're, you know, they're getting their loans for maybe 30 days, 60 days, 90 days at a time. So that's happening. But of course, it remains hugely critical to a facet of funding on Wall Street. And it is still the case that they get a lot of overnight money. And there is a reason why the Fed is encouraging Wall Street to come up with some giant safety net. They call it a clearinghouse. But these discussions have been going on for two years. A lot of other securities and trading on Wall Street have been cleared for years. You know, equities have been cleared for years. Derivatives have been cleared, you know, since Dodd-Frank. But repo loans are now supposed to be the next thing that the Fed wants to go through this giant sieve safety net. But the problem is the banks can't come up with the money and they can't figure out how to do it because everyone's disagreeing about how it should be done. Hmm. There's also, um, you know, at the heart of it, the right way to think about this is, out there in the world, um, there are these large uh, uh, securities holders, and there's large pools of cash. What this market does is tries to bring them together, and so the, the, you can fund the, per, the the holdings of these securities with these large pools of cash. Um, and one of the things the Fed's tried to do is say to banks in particular, when you have these large securities holdings, we want you to have uh, stable funding so that if you don't have access to that overnight market, you can last for 30 days um, and and before, you know, so basically so they can step in and try to fix things before everything really falls apart. Um, and it, get, it does get more complex when it's just one guy in the middle, right? Like, because if you have two guys, at least you have maybe another person to raise the alarm if something seems to go wrong. You know, monopolies tend to produce inefficient results. 
And so one problem is when you when you if Boney isn't worried about competing with somebody else for providing the best services and the best way of doing this, will you know sort of the, right, there's the no eyes put on, on them start by to the market, yeah, weaken? Yeah. Now have we and we we have to mm-hmm. wrap this up in a minute, but I wanted to ask one more question: Does Bank of New York have a Take on? I mean, are they are they happy about this situation? Are they concerned? Are I they mean, talking about it? They they are they are talking about it to an extent. They've number one. They've said they're trying to work with the situation, work with the with the firms that are going to be coming across when J P Morgan exit. They've they've you know sent reassuring messages to the Fed and the Treasury that you know they're trying to manage for a smooth transition here. Um, obviously, the disaster recovery scenarios that they learned after 2001 with the terror attacks and the issues that they had in their operational side, they're trying to fix and make better. But, you know, one wonders what sort of message the Fed and, and their regulators are, are really sending them about other assurances that they need now that this has gotten worse mm-hmm. than it was before. One question I have, and this is actually in some ways directed toward you, Paul, but has a Treasury of regulators, you know, looked at technology, essentially. I mean, the idea that like, having, you know, increasing having intermediaries and people to settle these things, it seems like in the not too distant future might be not be a necessary service as like, you know, like the blockchain yeah. is essentially. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny. When I, I'm getting at. When I first saw this story, the first thing I wanted to shout out was blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we know I, that. I don't, yeah, we know that the Fed's been looking at fintech right, right, right. as a solution for all sorts of things. We don't know if there's a payments policy slash regulation that's coming from that, but we know that they're keeping an eye. And we also know that Wall Street's largest settlements, securities clearing outfit, though not for treasuries, um, DTC, Depository Trust and yeah. Clearing Corp, has been looking for from, from fintech and Bitcoin for a while. Right. What, what, I was going to reference them uh we do have to wrap up here, but I was going to say, I mean, I think it's too early to say that there's an easily oh, grasped yeah. tech solution to this problem. But the interesting thing is you talk about the, the DTCC itself was born out of a crisis 40 years ago in, in the markets where you had volumes of stock trading were had risen to such a point where they could not clear these trades anymore. They couldn't actually make the, the handoff of the certificate for the cash, they had a huge paper problem, and they eventually came around to a tech-based solution, and the DTCC was part of that. So I think ultimately, Grocery, the answer to your question is, is yeah, technology will have to come in. to In some form, technology will have to be a part of the solution. But I that's not going to happen. Maybe that's soon. the silver lining here, you know, uh, concerns over the monopolistic uh, aspects of this may spur people to try to move more quickly 100%. Right. to a technology. And this, and this right. utility that they've been talking about as the backup, which was talked about in 2006, that will, should come back around again. And to your point about DTCC, I mean, phase two of this discussion to be continued is after Hurricane Sandy, what happened to all right. their stock securities that were underwater right. and, and how technology and how they're looking to fix that, which is also a scary Wall Street problem that we can talk about another yeah. time. I, I would say it would, it would be sort of interesting if a monop- the monopolistic concerns create you know developments in the technology because it's usually competition that's exactly the opposite. Right, right. It creates this sort of innovation. But there's obviously you know a, a gap in the market here yeah. that someone could probably yeah. 
Katie and I can just come on regularly and talk about why that thing you don't really know much about is the scariest thing in the world. I think think we've done a good job. Could be a regular segment. Yeah, Yeah. I think we've done a good job of getting the ramping up the fear. I think we've done a very good job. I hope you're not. (laughs) Winter is coming. Don't don't worry. It's it's not. Yeah, we're not going to be. No one's calling the dragons anytime soon. All right. uh, Thank you, Katie Byrne. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, John Carney, as always. Thanks for having me again. Uh, For Stephen and Paul, thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.